With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. The Oracle Network. Look deeper. Seven people were bludgeoned to death in the picturesque German countryside. Their killer lived with their bodies for days after, but they have never been caught. Welcome to or welcome back to the Great Unsolved Podcast. I'm your host Alexis and today is day four of 31 Days of Crime where I post a new episode every day. This year, instead of just doing true crime, we are doing conspiracy, true crime, um, <laughs> cults, and more. Just so you remember, our Patreon is releasing these all early and that link is below. All you have to do is sign up at the $2 donation part and you will get early access to any episodes I have up on there. Also below is a link to buy my book, all our social links, and a link to our website for all the show notes. Today we're going to talk about one of the most heinous and grotesque murders in German history, the Hinterkaifeck murders. Hinterkaifeck was a modest Bavarian farmstead located about an hour outside of Munich, Germany, in the small farming town of Groben. Hinterkaifeck's closest neighbor was over 500 yards away. The farmstead was extremely isolated. By the way, I want to put in a disclaimer. I don't know how to pronounce half of the names in this episode, so I'm going to try my best, but if they are not perfect, I am sorry. In 1922, Hinterkaifeck was home to 63-year-old Andreas Gruber and his wife, Kazilla Gruber. There they lived with their widowed daughter, Victoria Gabriel, and her two young children, 7-year-old Kazilla, who was nicknamed Celie, and 2-year-old Joseph. Their maid, 44-year-old Maria Baumgartner, only lived a single day at Hinterkaifeck. The day she moved in was the last day any member of the household would ever be seen alive. On April 4th, 1922, neighbors discovered the bloody, bludgeoned bodies of all seven residents. Andreas, Kazilla, Victoria, and seven-year-old Celie were found dead in the barn. The bodies of Maria and two-year-old Joseph were discovered inside the living quarters. It was a terrifying scene. In the weeks leading up to the murders, 63-year-old Andreas began to notice suspicious behavior around his property. He confided to another farmer nearby, Lorenz Schlittenbauer, 
that a pair of house keys had mysteriously disappeared. A Munich newspaper was discovered in the home, but no member of the household had traveled to Munich lately. When Andreas asked his postman about the strange newspaper, the postman claimed that he had never before seen it. So how did it get there? Four days before the killings, Andreas went to the farmstead's engine room to discover that the padlock had been broken. When he opened the door, he noticed tracks of snow dusting the floor. Someone had recently been inside. He then made a particularly eerie discovery. Two sets of footprints trailed from the distant fields right up to the homestead, and there were no footprints heading back out. This sounds like all the scary stories I would read online growing up, where there's footsteps leading up to the house, but not away, and then they found the killer living in their house, and I'm pretty sure this is how those stories kind of originated, because this is such an old case, but that kind of makes them even more terrifying, because it is based on fact. Another time, Andreas arrived at the farmstead after a visit with a friend. Upon his return, he found one of his cows loose from the stables, roaming the yard. Andreas, who had been arrested twice for indulging in an incestuous relationship with his daughter Victoria, despised law enforcement. He did not report any of this suspicious findings and evidence to the police which, in hindsight, was most likely a huge mistake in this case. Five days after Andreas discovered the broken padlock, on April 1st, 1922, two coffee salesmen stopped by Hinterkaifacht. They found the farm to be unusually still. Nobody answered their knocks on the door. The only sign that someone was home was the gate to the engine room. It had been left open. The salesmen decided to leave when no one answered their calls. That same day, seven-year-old Seelie failed to show up to her Saturday classes. This raised some concern among her teachers and peers, but they assumed she's probably homesick and didn't attempt to contact anyone at the property. Since this was 1922, it was a lot more difficult to contact people. Similarly, Celie's mom, Victoria, was not present at her church choir performance the next day. Bizarrely, there were signs that someone most likely was home. A carpenter walking past Hinterkaifeck that weekend noticed smoke billowing up through the chimney. He also noticed the oven light was on in the kitchen. He was taking in the otherwise disturbing silence of the farmstead, when he noticed a figure in the yard. The figure shined a flashlight into his eyes so he couldn't see. Afraid of this, the neighbor ran away. And this is another point that I gotta talk about because I have a very strange fear and I think it came from, oh goodness, I can't remember the name of the movie, but it was some like horror movie and in it, this lady's at a police station, and people had been killed there, like, years before, and the ghosts are coming back to haunt her, or something along those lines. 
and she gets locked in this dark room and someone in the corner or something in the corner shines a flashlight at her so she can't see who they are and ever since i've seen that movie i am terrified of like bright lights in my face if i can't see who is behind them i don't know why but that made this case even creepier to me because my weird obscure fear just happened to be in the middle of it the following Monday, the postman stopped by with that day's mail. He found that Saturday's mail was still piled up in their mailbox, untouched. On Tuesday, April 4th, a repairman arrived at Hinterkaifeck to service the farm's food chopper. He waited an hour at the disturbingly vacant farmstead. The only noises were that of the cattle and the family dog. The dog was locked inside the barn. The repairman took four and a half hours to complete his repair. At no point during these hours did he see or hear anyone. When he finished his work, the repairman checked the home once more for the family. He noticed the dog, who had been previously inside the barn, was now tied to a post outside. Following the mechanic's visit to the ghostly Hinterkaifeck, Concerned neighbors finally decided to search the property. Lorenz Schlittenbauer, who Andreas had previously confided in, led the search with neighbors Jacob, Siegel, and Michael Pohl. When the search team arrived, the doors around the property were locked, except for one. The door to the engine room, the same room where the coffee sellers noticed an open gate just days before, and inside the engine room was another door. This one led directly into the barn and something was kind of holding it shut. So a bunch of men in the search party pushed on the door until it finally swung open. A wooden beam had been positioned on the other side in a somewhat forlorn attempt to keep the door shut. The barn was pitch black only a tiny bit of light reached inside from a very small window. So the men used flashlights to see, stumbling around in search of any sign of the family. This was now four days since anyone in the family had been seen or heard from, and up until this point of the search, no one was able to see anything that stated these people were anywhere around the farmstead. Pole was the first to discover the bodies. Shocked to see a single foot emerging from a tangled mound of hay, him and Lorenz pulled the body by the foot. And this kind of messed up all the straw that was laying essentially as a blanket over this person. The men stared and started shuddering at the sight of Andreas Gruber's limp, bloody body. His skull appeared to have been smashed. They quickly unearthed three more bodies from this blanket of hay. Those of Kazilla, Victoria, and young Seely. The heads of all three victims were essentially smashed. Shaking with fear, Michael Pohl and Jacob Siegel left the barn, distancing themselves from the grisly sight. Lorenz, however, stayed for some time alone with the bodies. When Jacob questioned Lorenz about this, 
He claimed to be searching for the body of his toddler's son, Joseph. Victoria Gabriel had been in a romantic relationship with Lorenz three years earlier. When she became pregnant with Joseph, she asserted that Lorenz was the father, even putting L.S., Lorenz's initials, on the newborn's birth certificate. Joseph was nowhere to be found inside the barn, though. Lorenz searched the adjoining stables for the toddler, but only found the family dog, who was tied up inside. This was strange, since the mechanic had reported that the dog had been outside when he left just earlier that day. The dog acted unusually fearful, trembling, and his left eye was wounded. There was a door inside the stables that connected to the family's home, and this door was unlocked, giving them access to the home, finally. Lorenz searched the house. In a bedroom, he found Joseph's stroller covered with a long skirt belonging to Victoria. Cautiously, he lifted up the skirt. Underneath, Joseph's body lay unrecognizable. His head had also been completely smashed. After uncovering his young son's body, Lorenz unlocked a door of the bedroom to let Michael and Jacob inside. The two men wondered how Lorenz suddenly had a key to the house. Lorenz claimed the key was left inside the lock. But Michael and Jacob like, weren't too sure of this. They found it very difficult to believe. Anyways, the three of them continued to search the entire house. They made their way into the maid's chamber, where they found Maria's mattress had been taken off the bed and was lying on the floor. By lifting the bedspread, they found Maria's bloody body. Michael and Jacob left to get help. Lorenz, however, stayed at Hinterkaifeck, he told his friends he was going to tend to the livestock. While he was there, however, he invited friends to come gander at the bodies, which severely disturbed the crime scene. One neighbor even went into the kitchen for a snack, rummaging around the cabinets and disturbing any potential clues that could have been in that room. When a neighbor mentioned to Lorenz that the presence of onlookers could destroy critical evidence, Lorenz shrugged it off saying that it was too late to do anything about it now. He seemed very nonchalant about the entire thing, even though his son had just been murdered. The police had to travel fairly far to reach Hinterkaifeck, and they didn't arrive to the town around there until about 1.30 a.m. Because of this, they decided to sleep after the long journey and arrived at Hinterkaifeck at 5.30 a.m., the day after the bodies were discovered. This is five days after the murders actually occurred. So evidence is just all messed up and the whole case is messed up at this point. The police started by searching the living quarters and found spots of blood on the threshold leading to the maid's chambers. There was a little bit more blood leading to the other bedrooms. While searching the house, investigators began to suspect that this crime was a personal attack against Victoria, who, if you remember, was the mother of Celie and Joseph, and apparently had Joseph with the Lorenz guy who decided to mess up a lot of the crime scene. Victoria's bedroom was the only room in the house that was completely ransacked. Her personal belongings, including a watch, a purse, and some papers, were completely thrown around her bed. 
Perhaps even more telling was the fact that Victoria sustained by far the most severe injuries. She was the only victim to have markings that were consistent with strangulation, which is generally thought of as the most personal way to kill someone. So it normally occurs in rage or passion killings. Her head also showed nine star-shaped wounds. In the attic of the house, police found bits of food and human excrement. There were piles of straw laid out across the floor as though somebody had been sleeping up there. Police also found loose tiles on the roof that when they were removed, showed an expansive view of the home and the yard. Police wonder how long the person was actually sleeping there and when they could have left the house because all the doors had been locked from the inside. In the kitchen, investigators noticed that the entire bread supply was gone, along with many servings of meat. Between this and the report of the carpenter seeing the oven light on days earlier, it is 100% believed now that the perpetrator or multiple perpetrators were living at the homestead for multiple days following the killing of this family. So many days had passed since the murders, and because of Lorenza's open invitation to just come into the house and do whatever you want, so much evidence had been tampered with. It was literally impossible to tell the order in which the victims were actually killed, which could have been detrimental to the case. However, there are some hints of the order that the victims could have been killed in due to their clothing. Victoria and Kazilla were found fully dressed, so they were most likely the first victims. Andreas, who was found in an undershirt and trousers, seemed to be in the process of changing into his nightclothes, so he was probably killed third. Finally, little Celie was found in her nightgown indicating that she was already ready for bed by the time the perpetrator got to her. Because of Andrea's earlier report that he arrived home to find a cow loose in the yard, it is believed that the perpetrator may have let cattle loose to draw the family into the barn one by one before proceeding to kill the other two in the living quarters. There, it is suspected that Maria was killed first so that there was no one left to save the baby. Investigators did not go through a search of the crime scene. They failed to collect any fingerprints, even though they really couldn't because of all the people who had been in the house by now. And they failed to take more than five pictures of the crime scene. There was very little blood splatter to be found. Aside from some on the barn door and a few spots, that were in the living quarters, there was virtually none. You would think that with the smashing of six people's heads, there would be blood splatter everywhere, but that just was not the case. However, this killer did have time, like four or five days after the murders to clean up the crime scene. The large amount of people that had interacted with the scene along with rainfall that had happened since the family was killed, made for a huge lack of forensic evidence. This is one of the reasons that the case remains completely unsolved today, even with our massive leap in forensic technology. 
Autopsies were performed at the crime scene, with many curious community members watching. Which kind of stunned me, but I guess it was 1922 in Germany, so I don't know how they did things. The autopsies concluded that every victim was killed from blunt force trauma to the head, probably with a farm tool like an axe or a hoe. Seely was the only victim not to die instantly. The seven-year-old suffered for up to three agonizing hours, and it is possible that she may have survived if she had received immediate medical attention. The victims' heads were sent to the University of Munich for examination, but their bodies remained at home for burial. When investigators were clearing out the bodies for the funeral, they noticed a rope hanging from the loft that was inside the barn, and it had not been there a few minutes earlier. They climbed into the loft where they found handprints, but they did not collect fingerprints, and they never found out who had been up there. A year later in 1923, relatives of the family demolished Hinterkaifeck. During that time, carpenters came across loose floorboards in the attic. They removed them to find a blood-stained mattock with a loose screw on the handle. Markings created by the screw were identical to the star markings found on Victoria's head. Excavators also found a bloody penknife buried under straw in the barn, near where the bodies had been found in the barn. The police interviewed dozens of suspects, but they never really came to a firm conclusion. Many people believe that the main suspect is Lorenz Schlittenbauer because he was supposedly Joseph's father. The murders seemed to be mainly towards Victoria, and he somehow was able to get into the house and find the bodies, and then he messed up the evidence, and it just seemed pretty coincidental that all this happened. Three days after Victoria gave birth to Joseph, and claimed that Lorenz Schlittenbauer was the baby's father, Lorenz reported Victoria and her father Andreas to the authorities for engaging in incest. Lorenz was convinced that the baby was truly fathered by Andreas. Schlittenbauer eventually dropped the charges after Victoria told him she would not make him pay any child support. Lorenz continued to have a deeply strained relationship with Victoria and Andreas, constantly changing his mind on whether Joseph was his son or not, and even asking Andrea's permission for Victoria's hand in marriage, under the condition that all incest stuff stopped. But Andreas refused. Further, Lorenz was disturbingly calm upon discovering the bodies, including the body of his apparent son. Jacob Siegel, who had been in the search party with Lorenz when the bodies were found, told police about Lorenz's suspicious possession of the house key. The police eventually crossed Lorenz off as a suspect due to lack of evidence and no clear motive. Jacob, however, continued to insist that Lorenz had committed the heinous crime, and in turn, Lorenz sued Jacob for defamation and threatened to do the same to anyone who dared to accuse him. Which just, it seems fairly sketchy. One intriguing suspect is actually Victoria's deceased husband, Carl Gabriel. Carl had supposedly died in World War I, but his body had never been recovered. 
Some have theorized that he may have secretly returned home, and upon learning of Victoria's relationship with her father, he murdered the entire family. Other suspects were well-known thieves, a neighbor who committed and bragged about a mass murder years earlier, and a pair of brothers whose mother gossiped about their involvement in the murder to a friend. Over the past century, the police have investigated 105 total suspects. In 2007, a group of students from the Bavarian Police Academy tried to solve the case using modern-day technology. They concluded that the lack of evidence and large passage of time made it impossible to really ever solve these murders. They did come up with a prime suspect, but were not able to release his name out of respect to living relatives. So, there's a lot of creepy stuff going on in this case. The footsteps that lead up to the house and the stuff found in the attic after the bodies were discovered tells us that whoever killed them, and I think it was just one person just based on everything that was found and the police stating that people were killed in an order, it just seems more like one person. And that way it would stay unsolved because one person could not rat the other person out. Anyway, this person lived in their attic for quite some time, which is insanely creepy to find out. Um, so now I'm going to check everything before I go to bed every night because I'm worried someone could be living in the house. Anyways, this happened, but then when he killed them, it went unnoticed for five days. However, he stayed, he made food, he slept in their house, he literally lived with the dead bodies, and that just makes him all the more creepy. Although, it he's dead now, he has to be, it's been almost 100 years, it's still insanely creepy that a murderer could live with his victims for that long. And when, even when police were there, this guy was going into the barn, setting up a rope that hadn't been there minutes earlier. That also had to be just insanely creepy for the mechanic, because after learning about this, like he went to a home with six murdered people, and the killer had moved the dog while he was there. That, I don't know, this case just freaks me out because this killer was so confident and just existed there. That makes many people think, including me, that he lived around the area and he knew the family. To be that confident staying in someone's home after you've killed them, you generally have a relationship to that family. And also, the murders being primarily for Victoria also backs that up. Which most likely means it was Lorenz. He seemed too calm, he had too much access to the farm, and he purposefully, pretty much, messed up the entire crime scene.
Today, the murders at Hinterkaifeck remain one of the most notorious unsolved crimes in Germany and around the world. While we may not have enough evidence to come to a concrete conclusion right now, there are hundreds of theories out there. However, since we do not have enough time to actually discuss all of those, this is where the episode is going to end. Be sure to check out our social media, Patreon, at tomorrow's episodes, the rest of October's episodes, and just stay safe and have a great day. The Great Unsolved is a production of the Oracle Network.